0: toughness with dr rob bell each week dr rob sits down
1: with athletes executives and expert coaches to talk about mental toughness and their hinge moment here's your host dr rob
0: Ruben Amaro, non-prospect, can't hit, can't throw, can't field, can't run. All of those. <laughs> yeah. and he, my dad showed it to me. He said, what the hell happened to you? <laughs> I said, well, what's going on there at Stanford? And you, all of a sudden, you can't do any of these things. I said, I have no idea. Um, but that will change also. And And again, it was like one of those things. Like, I'm going to show that scout that he made a grave mistake on his assessment of me as a player. And I'm going to prove him wrong and uh, you know fortunately for me you know five or six years later or seven years later i was in the big league so
1: folks when i finished my 100 miler i was happy to be done but i wasn't finished the reason why my legs weren't completely bonked from running was that i used pr lotion by momentous it simply eliminated any lactic acid buildup in my legs and it's the best product I've ever used. Momentus is a leading nutrition and supplement company which works with over 150 professional and collegiate sports teams. No other company has the accolades of being awarded six innovation contracts from the Department of Defense for Human Performance. Since I started using PR Lotion, I now use their plant-based protein, collagen peptides, and recovery formula. Look, if performing is important to you, do yourself a favor. Go to livemomentous.com. And for listening today, you get the best part, a discount. Enter code DRB20 for 20% off your order. That's D-R-B and the number 20. Livemomentous.com. Optimize, perform, and recover livemomentous.com. So our guest today on 15 Minutes of Mental Toughness, he's a former Major League Baseball player for seven seasons, won the pennant with the Indians, won the NL pennant with the Phillies, as well as he was general manager for the Phillies from 2008 to 2015. Great, uh, great years there. He's also served as a major league coach for the Mets and Red Sox. Most recently, pre- and post-game analyst for NBC Sports in Philly. He's won at every level. World Series, College World Series as a player, won the World Series as an assistant GM. Switch hitter. This is impressive, man. <laughs> Our guest today, Coach Ruben Amaro Jr. Coach, thanks so much for joining us, man.
0: Rob, thanks for having me.
1: So I've got to start this out. So Harry Callis actually called your very first major league home run and delivered that to you. You, you got to tell us that story, man. Cause that's
0: amazing. Yeah, it was pretty neat. I mean, um, obviously growing up in Philadelphia, Harry Callis, iconic, uh, play-by-play announcer, he and Whitey Ashburn. And, uh, it's kind of interesting that I've sort of come full circle now in broadcasting myself. So that's been, that's kind of cool. But, um, you know i got traded to the phillies i originally came through the angels organization got traded to the phillies made my first major league uh team out of spring training in um in that year in 1992 and um unfortunately for the phillies lenny dykstra got hurt and uh, they uh inserted me into center field and uh I guess in my very first start as a Philadelphia Philly I hit a home run and two doubles and and Harry Callis made the call and he was such a gracious man and just kind of set the tone as far as my relationship with him like long term right uh he came down afterwards congratulations uh brought me down the tape I still have the tape and and uh every once in a while when I need a good pumping up you know I'll I'll listen to it um really special moment for me and uh you know not, not just because it was my first home run but it was i mean amazingly uh hall of famer harry callis right. called it and brought the tape down i mean that was uh quite quite a moment for me
1: i mean doesn't that go to the testament of a type of character that he was i mean because that was something i mean he obviously did not have to do but went out of his way to do that
0: yeah he, that's absolutely the truth uh just a great guy i mean i I got to know him so well over the years, but uh, one of the neatest things that as a, as I became more of a veteran with the organization, I got to sit back in the back of the plane and Harry was the only guy who got to sit in the back of that plane um, as a broadcaster uh, when we traveled mm-hmm. and uh, just got a chance to spend a lot of time with him, talking with him. Uh, he's just a con- really, really kind. He was a, uh, an amazing human being and, ironically he passes away on my very first game as a gm in 2009 in the booth um when when we were playing the washington nationals and i was that was my very first game as as the official gm and just kind of strange how things work out but um but i guess if he was going to go that's the place he probably wanted to go from you know yeah
1: and so you have the foundation though that's that's also through him as well correct
0: yeah, so we have uh, my brother and uh, Rick Miller who's my uh, high school coach um, at Penn Charter, and and a, a few others, Richie Ashburn uh, Jr. Uh, we've sort of founded this uh, Richie Ashburn-Harry Callis Foundation, which, um, you know, basically we give free clinics to uh, kids in, in the <laughs> Philadelphia area. Probably uh, up until the COVID hit, probably 10 to 12 free clinics during the course of the summer where kids can come out. We have some kids from Penn Charter. Other instructors come out and uh, work with the kids for the weekend. It's free for them. We give them a t-shirt, and and I think more than anything else, it's uh, uh, originally it was the Ashburn Foundation, but but it just made sense uh, for those guys being so so well connected that um, that Harry would put his name on that as well, and we got permission to do that, and um, it uh, kind of typifies what uh, they they were about. It was for them. It was, it's about um, you know, bringing youth baseball back and back in the fold. It's, uh, it, it's, it's something that's important to me. Um, uh, because I love the game so much. I've, I've been very fortunate and benefited a lot from me and my family, but, um, but it was also really important for, to Harry and to Richie Ashburn.
1: Absolutely, man. That's awesome. So you grew up in Northeast Philly, Penchar, like you said, I mean, you were a soccer player in baseball. I mean, where did the, uh, I I guess walk us through the part of like the toughness that you got then growing up and and how that was kind of instilled early on.
0: And as well, what's interesting, I think, um, you know, for me, um, because I had my father's last name uh, and first name, uh, my brother uh, was an older as an older brother. He kind of paved the way for me. He was a baseball player, very good athlete as well. Um, but the comparisons i think because my brother played a totally different position he was a first baseman outfielder you know he did uh he's a big strong guy i was smaller you know um sort of my dad's size i played shortstop just like my dad as a kid growing up and like i don't get those constant comparisons about well you know you're not as good as your dad and this that and the other and and i I sense that. I mean, I put a lot of pressure on myself as a as an athlete, as a performer, as a st- student athlete to to really perform well. And um, you know, those are just things that I think that come with the territory, right? Um, you know, you you have the same name on the back, and you have the same name on the front, and it, it just becomes um, something you just kind of have to deal with. Now, we didn't I didn't think about it much as I was growing up as a youth, but as I got into you know, when I got into high school and and you know, people started. You know, watching me play and getting more exposure. Um, you know, you just have to deal with some of those adversities and try to just become your own person. And you know, I never tried to compare myself to my father. I never could. He was a you know phenomenal major league shortstop, and uh, I was a, you know kind of a different player. I was a middle infielder, but I was a different player. I was a. I ended up playing in the outfield mostly as a major leaguer, but you know, switch hitter, use my speed, that sort of thing. So. You're we two, two uh, kind of totally different players, but the fact that, you know, the fact that we both had the same exact name, I think that put some added pressure on me as a kid. Yeah,
1: and so when did you get the sense of, you know, I'm I'm good?
0: Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I um, I was never, um, I, the, the, some of the tools that I had, like the specific tools, I mean, I had a very good eye hand coordination and I was mm-hmm. a switch hitter, as you said earlier. Um, and I had a pretty good quickness and speed, but I think I had a, um, for me, it was about, um, trying to be better than the next guy. I always, I, I my, my competitiveness and the, and the way I went about my business and everything I did is I just wanted to win. I wanted to compete and I wanted to win, and I think that that kind of set me apart from some of the other uh, talents that I that, that that I played with, some of my constituents and things like that. I was just uh, from ping pong to pool to you know swimming. I mean, it didn't matter. I was everything was about comp- you know competing in the competition, yep. and so um, so for me, um, it was almost like, hey, I'm not going to be denied. I'm going to make this happen somehow in some way, and even if I might be you know, not so talented in one area, I'm going to figure out a way to get better in that area so that it, so that it propels me forward. Um, and I just remember just a quick story about that. I, Bill Bavese was my, um, was my, uh, player development director before he became the GM with the angels when I was with the angels organization. And I remember one year, um, it was like well, I was after my one of my A ball years. And he said, "Well, you know, you had great on base percentage, but you don't have much power. You know, you're not really driving the ball that much for an outfielder. This, that, and the other. So I decided, you know, okay, I'll show you some power. And then the next year, I kind of bulked up a little bit, got a little bit stronger, and and you know, the the in, in a couple of years, I was leading the uh, all of minor leagues in in extra base hits or doubles or something like that. And so. Uh, and every year was something different. Like uh, you know, you're not stealing enough bases. Oh, really? Okay. Well, then then I'm going to figure out a way to steal more bases and, and be a better player. Or you know, your arm's not strong. Whatever the case may be. And I was grateful for them to point those things out to me because I I viewed those as not um, I didn't think those view those as a negative. I bu- viewed those as a challenge, and I love challenges. And so. Mm-hmm. Um, I just remember saying to myself, I, it won't be for a lack of effort to try to improve some of my, you know, some of the things that I was not able to do well. I'm going to try to figure out and make sure I get to the big leagues somehow and, and try to stay.
1: Yeah, I've, I've always found that coach that the very best at some level, some area, they were told, look, you're, you're not good enough. And then they developed oh, that. Well, yeah. I'll, I'll
0: show you. That's exactly what happened to me. Yeah. And, and and I'll give you two, two really good stories about that. I was being recruited to go to uh, a lot of East Coast schools out of high school. Um, I had decided now at this point after being a bat boy that, you know, I loved soccer. I really liked that game. But when I spent time like with those, you know, Phillies teams in the late eighties, or excuse me, early eighties when they won a the world series. And then they had a couple of great runs there in 81, 82, 83, they went back to the world series in 83. i like fell in love with the game. This is the game I want to play. This is yeah. where I want to make my, my living. And was getting recruited to a couple of schools for soccer, a couple of schools for baseball. But I told people, Hey, I'm, I'm playing baseball. I'm a baseball player. This is what I want to do. Well, one of the, one of the, uh, coaches, um, that I was a recruit for, I'd gotten into a couple of different schools and I went to, uh, uh I guess Princeton was, I was with their, one of their number one recruits as a position player. And, uh, and they had a coach there. Uh, he's, I think he's since passed, unfortunately, Tom O'Connell, who, um, in some ways I was kind of mad at, but I really, and when I think about it now, um, was a pretty cathartic moment for me, a pretty big hinge moment. And one of the, one of the things that happened was when I decided to, to sign my letter of intent to Stanford, uh, which I did. Uh, you know, I called all the schools. And he was the only coach that said to me, Son, you just made the worst mistake of your life. You will never play there. You're not good enough to play at that level. And he basically berated me a little bit. And um, and I remember, I'll remember that story forever because I thought to myself, really? Well, I'm gonna show this dude. And when I went there, I ended up starting as a freshman. I played basically all four of my years there. I ended up, you know, obviously getting drafted and playing. But the summer, I guess two summers after that, um, I saw him at Cape Cod. (laughs) I saw him at the Cape Cod uh, League and I was playing in and I saw him there and I went right up to him after playing in my first College World Series. uh, uh, Playing being a third baseman. And I said, hello, Coach O'Connell. I want to thank you for uh, creating uh, that fire, helping that fire in me, because I'm the player now that I am, basically because I wanted to prove you wrong. <laughs> yeah. And so I think that was that was a pretty big moment for me. Um, and I think about that often. I, I'm, I, it probably wasn't the most professional way to handle it as a coach. I don't think that's the right thing. Wasn't the, really the right thing to do. But in retrospect, I mean, it really kind of, for me, it kind of helped me. I and mean, others may have not have felt the same way. Others may have. You know, dealt with it differently, but that I viewed that as a challenge. And then I had a you know I had a similar one happen to me when I was uh, playing in college. I was at Stanford, and it was my second year after my second year. I'm headed back to go to Cape Cod and getting ready to go. My dad was now coaching with the Chicago Cubs, and you know um, he was he was a the bench coach. And uh, you know I was working out with guys like Ryan Sandberg and Larry Boa and Ron Say, taking ground balls and my dad took it upon himself to go upstairs and check out the reports that they had on me from Stanford. And he brought down the report and the report said, basically this guy was a non-pro. you're Ruben Amaro non-prospect can't hit, can't throw, can't field, can't run. All of those. <laughs> yeah. and he, my dad showed it to me. He said, what the hell happened to you? <laughs> I said, well, what's going on there at Stanford? And you all of a sudden you can't do any of these things. I said, I have no idea. Um, but, that will change also. And, and again, it was like one of those things, like I'm going to show that scout that he made a grave mistake on his assessment of me as a player and I'm going to prove him wrong. And, uh, you know, fortunately for me, you know, five or six years later or seven years later, I was in the big league. So I love that. um, But those are, those are, you know, really important moments in my life to be able to have that, have people because some, you may, some other people may have not even had that opportunity or been told those things. And so right. I think that was kind of the fire for me.
1: Yeah. I, I love that coach. I mean, that's, that's such a good story. So how like hanging out with the penguin training you know, with Ryan Sandberg, Larry Boa, I mean, how much, when you got to see what they did at that level, how much did that help your overall development?
0: You know, it's a, another t- terrific uh, question because, um, to me, I like, I love to watch them prepare and their preparedness and what they had to go through to get to the point where they were the players that they were. And so their routines, um, the effort that they had, like the daily repetition of of you know honing your craft, um, those were the things that I watched and observed and learned. I remember my dad telling me a million times, you know, you've got one mouth and you know two ears for a reason. So you can listen a lot more and try not to talk. Now I've talked too much now, but, um, but, but it's for, he's right. And, and and two eyes. So you can observe because I think um, just being able to watch them go about their business and prepare on a daily, even guys like, like backup players when I was with the Phillies, like Greg gross and Dell Unser, and the work that they put in to get that one at bat every three days, or to come in and have to make and make a, you know, get a bunt down or to make one big play that would, that actually made a difference, you know, in, in there, um, not just for them personally, but for the team, those were the things that, um, that I got to observe and thought, you know what, I'm not going to let, you know, work or the lack of work or preparedness not get me to where I needed to be as far as my own personal goals were concerned.
1: Yeah. How obsessive did you get when, you know, you had a shot, you were, you know, becoming a major leaguer. How obsessive were you about your preparation and your routine and, and your daily disciplines?
0: Yeah, so um, uh, David Esker, who is now the uh, Stanford, head Stanford coach, is a very close friend of mine. We won the College World Series together at Stanford in 87. Uh, he was their shortstop. Um, we worked very, very diligently on our, my, I knew that if if I was going to get to the big leagues, I would have to do it with my bat. And, um, and uh, I had to prove that I could be a really, really good hitter in the minor league so that I can continue, continue to kind of matriculate through the organization. So we did a lot of studying, like all the time. We talked on the phone a lot. And then uh, in the off seasons, I would go to Stanford from Philadelphia to prepare for spring trainings. And we would just work on... Um, one of the guys that, that we studied was one of the best hitters in baseball at the time was Wade Boggs and Wade Boggs had some theories about you know what it was like to um, what he did and how he what his theories were in his approach to hitting and we worked on that every single day These every are fundamentals yeah uh, i mean just yeah, you know, basically just your swing path and your your thought process and uh, that uh, that was one of them the other was the the other was you know working on my arm strength, long tossing because you know now it's gonna be I was transitioning from being a you know infielder to an outfielder, and now I had to make sure I so all those things I had to I had to be superior to everyone else in all those other fundamental areas, particularly on the hitting side, because that really was gonna set me apart. But fundamentally, I had to be able to bunt. I had to be able to move runners, I had to be able to do the small things to to make myself a valuable player for a team and uh things are a little different now i think there's a there's a little bit different approach that, that guys have now but for me back then it was so important for me to be able to do those little things those very now uh, that, that that aren't all, all that sexy but they do help win games and they do help teams have success and i felt like you know i better be as good as anybody with doing those things know how to base run be a good base runner be smart um you know be uh, aware and understand the game in a way that maybe others did not. Um and 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 that was gonna that was gonna kind of help propel me forward.
1: Yeah. I love it, coach. It's fantastic, man. Like share with us then, so you you get in the major leagues. Um what what stands out with you about, you know, playing for the Phillies, winning the NL pennant, you know, at that time? What um, what stands out?
0: Yeah, so my first year, I really struggled. Um, I had a very good start. I had a great start to the season. I was, you know, uh, like the very first that week after I hit them, my first home run and Harry made that call. I had an unbelievable way. I was a player of the week. And I think what happened to me, I got out of my routines. I got out of my routine. I, I, I stopped. To focusing on the things that made me a very good baseball player, working my way up through the minor leagues, and and I and I think the emotion of being who I was, the fact that my dad played there, I start I got really caught up in those things. Um, and it didn't t- it took me until I had one teammate finally come up to me and really uh, again another really great moment. Um, I was so worried about how everybody was perceiving me. Right, I was so worried about all that. Instead of focusing on doing my routines and doing the things that I did that to make me successful that, um, it took me kind of totally out of my program, right. Totally out of my plan. And I had um, John Cruck, who is now a broadcasting, uh, teammate of mine. Yep. Um, you know, Cruck. he came to me and put his arm around me one day and he said, he said, Ruben, um, at some point you just got to have to uh, say the hell with it, leave all this stuff alone Put this stuff in the past and go be you go be you and don't worry about what people are thinking about don't think you know and i think that was a really it was a really important moment for me because there was, i felt so much pressure i was creating so much pressure for myself thinking about all the outside obstacles that i never um that i had forgotten to to get back to who i was and I think from that point on, I never became a great major league player, but I also um, felt like I could contribute in certain ways. And I focused on doing that as opposed to trying to, you know, be the best player in the game because that just wasn't going to happen. So, um, but that was a really important moment for me as well.
1: So coach, I need you to just elaborate a little bit on that. So, I mean, this is something you've, you've gotten the daily disciplines down, you know, all through, you know, high school, going to college, Proving People Wrong, Cape Cod League. I mean, you've got that down. Now you have your very first week in the show. I mean, incredible opening opening game. First week in the show, you have success. You reach that mountaintop. And then just like that, the, the slide started to happen.
0: Yep. That's exactly what happened. And I, and I, what happened was, I went back and looked at some of my tapes and watched myself hit. And I thought to myself, oh my God, that doesn't even look like me. I mean, I was trying to do things that I never tried to do. All of a sudden, I thought I was a home run hitter. And right. I was, you know, I was a contact guy and I was striking out and doing things. Now, the competition obviously was much better. And you obviously, you're going to get exploded, exploited much more at the major league level because the talent's better. And they're, you know, and the pitching's just uh, that much better. But But at the same time, I did not. I let I let myself get out of my routines, and that's what put me behind the eight ball. And and uh, and I have nobody to blame but myself because I couldn't refocus. Now it took me a while. I finally did at the end of the year. I think it was uh, it was kind of cathartic for me. I finally got sent out. They sent me out after uh, like a really deep struggle for a few months, and then when I went back down to AAA, I got my kind of reset. You know, my mind reset. I got back into my routines. I started doing my things again. Uh, a, a lot of the visualization things and things that I did that, that made me successful. And then I took it into the last part of the year and then I got recalled and had a pretty good end of the season. Um, and so I was really proud of being able to overcome that finally. Right. Now, at that point, uh, you know, back then, once. Once you go through a period that long where you don't have a lot of success, you kind of get labeled, and then you you know you know now now I was considered a bench player, and if that's I, I I've thought I could be an everyday player still, but if that's how people were going to view me, I was going to try to be the best bench player I could possibly be, right? Make myself as valuable as as possible, and so from that point on in my career, um, I start feeling a lot more more comfortable in my own skin. My only regret is that I never got a chance to be an everyday player again, um, because I ended up playing on a couple of different teams. Where, you know, in in Cleveland we had uh, Kenny Lofton and Albert Bell and and, uh, Manny Ramirez in the outfield. I I don't, I, you know, I wasn't (laughs) going to be playing a whole lot. But, but again, I mean, it was time for me to to be a different role player. I was. uh, It was time for me to be as good a backup outfielder as I possibly could, or pinch runner, or pinch hitter, or whatever the case may be. good looking. If you like this podcast and are already a badass but it's all way too complicated
1: then visit our website drrobbell.com and schedule a call with us to help capture your very own hinge moment. Yeah. What in, in the 95 series, what stands out to you about
0: that one? Uh, well, uh, ultimately, it was the Braves pitching that beat up on our uh, unbelievable offensive team. I mean, you know, we think we scored more runs per game than any team in baseball in Cleveland that year. And we ran up against, you know, Glavin, Maddox, and, and Smoltz. And, I mean, those guys were just amazing. Avery, Avery too, right? I think Avery was on that club yeah. as well. So, I mean, it was just an amazing... Uh, Wallers was their closer. Yeah. Um and I mean, it was a perfect example of you know pitching, good pitching, beating up on good hitting, and uh, you know we were not challenged at all. I mean, the entire season. I mean, that year in ninety in ninety five, we went hundred and forty four. It was a, I think it was a strike or a lockout shortened season, so we only played one hundred and forty four games. We won hundred games in one hundred and forty four, which was insane. Um, And I mean, we would be playing games and we'd be down three or four, nothing. And after the first two or three innings and the game was in hand, we'd end up killing teams uh, winning eight, you know, eight, three or ten, five or whatever the case may be. But um, it was a fun time in Cleveland. It was a time when all these guys were kind of coming together, the Tomies and the Ramirez's and, you know, all the other names that we talked about. But it's uh, it was an exciting time. It was a fun time for the franchise. And I was it was unbelievable for me. Um, I mean, one of the most unbelievable, craziest moments was that when they ended up doing the playoff roster, I was chosen over Dave Winfield and and for like the last roster spot. And that was for me, I just blew me, blew my mind. And but but it also made me feel good about knowing that I had I did what I needed to do to make myself valuable to the team in my role and uh, and for me to get that opportunity um, Dave Winfield is a wonderful human being and a good friend, and he handled it so gracefully. I mean, he came up to me and said, "Listen, you know, obviously I'm pretty pissed off that I'm not going to be on this team, but I'm happy for you, and that that shouldn't ever affect our our friendship. That's a decision that that none of us made." So, also a really very very cool moment when you when you replace a Hall of Famer in for a roster spot to go to the playoffs. That's kind of crazy for a guy who was what a two twenty or two fifteen career hitter.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's a, that is impressive, man. That's impressive that he would that he would do that as well.
0: Yes, absolutely. A true professional, tremendous.
1: I always felt like if if metal bats exist in the major leagues and you had a metal bat in Dave Winfield's hand, you would not. If he would a third baseman. He would have, have killed, killed somebody. Yeah, yeah a, killed.
0: a pitcher or third baseman would have been killed. It's funny. He has a great story. Dave Winfield. um, uh, I remember my very first major league camp. I was a non-roster invitee uh in with the Angels, actually. This was uh this is years prior. This is so this is the second time I played with him. Um and he was telling a story about how he felt, and I this is something that I put in my mind and I said, it's just so perfect for me. He believed that every at bat, every pitch, it was like it was a gunsling. he was a gunslinger, and it was a gunfight. And that his job was to beat that guy who was on the mound and that job of that pitcher is to try to beat him. And he, that's how he approached every single of you, you know, we stepped in and he's real intent. He wanted to make himself intimidating, big and powerful. And, and I thought to myself, God, I love that. So when I, when I, as I progressed through my, you know, my own development, I mean, that was one of the things, I mean, I watch guys like Juan Soto who has that same sort of presence. Now, like he gets in the box, like there's no way dude that you're getting me out. And I had that same sort of mentality. and I utilized that. Um, I thought it was a very powerful thing for me, for someone, you know, I was kind of demeanor. I was only five, 10. So, um, but I, but I still had that. I felt like I had that presence. I, I, I was going to compete my butt off against you and figure out a way to beat you.
1: I love it, man. So, coach, you you finish your playing career, and and then you you go into front office with the Phillies, and that was underneath Ed Wade, automated yep, automatically. Yep.
0: Yeah. What, Ed, a, what Ed, a
1: great what a great GM.
0: Yeah, I mean Ed doesn't get a lot of props, but he was um, he did a great job in Houston, did a great job in Philadelphia, formulating all those teams that ended up becoming World Series champions. Um, so he should get a lot of credit for that. Ed is uh, pretty special. He's godfather of one of my children so good still very good friend of mine and i respect him greatly um and for him to take the and for him to take a chance on a guy coming right off the field and give me the the job of being his assistant i mean that takes a lot of guts and uh but he felt like um the way i comported myself the way i went about my business that i was kind of the right guy for him and I thought we were a great mix and uh, it was just a joy being able to work for him. Uh, And again, he doesn't get a whole lot of credit, but he did a heck of a job of really building the foundation of what we became, you know, you know, just four or five years after that.
1: Absolutely. So right after you win the World Series, that's when you become GM. Now, was it the day of the, was it the day of the parade?
0: So I was informed not the day of, but a couple of days prior. And so oh, that was a okay. really strange, that was a very, very strange, I had been have been in discussions with David Montgomery um, and he had decided to uh, have me be the guy. And that was just a really weird time. Like I'm sitting on the float thinking to myself, oh my goodness, I am going to be like the steward of this organization next. And this is like an unbelievable moment, but all that was going through my head was, okay, I got to prepare. What do I got to do to prepare? You know, I have you know a whole lot of business to take care of, um, and a lot of changes. And uh, you know, I wasn't afraid to do that. But I, but I had tremendous guidance. I mean, Pat Gillick, uh, who became the GM, uh, and I worked for him for three years after Ed. I mean just the, the the knowledge and uh, the way they went about their business. I took a, a lot of information about how Ed went about his business and a lot of it from, from Pat Gillick and try to formulate kind of my own style. But, um, but, you know, it was a weird time being on that parade float and thinking, right. I'll get, you know, who's going to be our next you know left fielder. Who's going to be our field coordinator. Who's going to, you know, I was thinking about a lot of different things during that time. So it was a strange transition for me, but, uh, but it's obviously a dream come true
1: yeah quick question before we get into like the first couple of years of of being a GM and i'm just kind of throwing this out there but was Shane victorino was that your favorite player on the team
0: I really liked Shane a lot uh, i loved him and Shane was a he was an exciting guy he he brought a lot of energy to the team obviously he liked to chirp a lot he's yeah. uh he, he's a fun guy to be around you know ed uh mike onda who' was our who was our professional scouting director. He's still there here with the Phillies now. Um, he kind of recommended him. We we talked. He had played against my dad or for my dad's team down in Venezuela. So we knew a, a little bit of background about who he was. So we ended up drafting him in the in the Rule 5 draft. Now, he did not make the team, but Ed and myself and others kind of convinced him to stay with the organization. So when he got through waivers, no one took him. We put him in AAA. He ended up being like the AAA player of the year, and then he became, you know, our next right fielder and a center fielder, and and then the kind of history after that. But um, but his story is a great one too. I mean, there's another guy who um, who got knocked back a few times. He ruled five. He was rule five two times, and just uh, figured out a way to, to to make his way and had a heck of a major league career for himself. Oh yeah, and Absolutely. played on a couple of great <laughs> major league. Another winner, you know, he, another guy who figured out a ways to win.
1: Yeah, because I always looked at him. I mean, he's he's the, you know, kind of a Lenny for mentality. I mean, just a guy that's just going to find a way to get it done. Yep. And and you you question how's this guy beat me?
0: Yeah. No. No. No question about it. And he, you know, yeah. he was a switch hitter who ran very well. Um, he had a very good arm, but he, again, a, a, a diminutive guy. He's only only five nine or five ten, and not not like a big guy. But uh, but he played his heart out, and he tried to figure out ways to beat you, and and he did it. And he was mm-hmm. a winning type player as a result of
1: first couple years, walk us through the first couple years being the GM there for, for Phillies, your experience, the positives. Yeah.
0: So my brother, uh, told me, he said, you know, you had to take a team that just won the world series. There's only one way, one way to go. <laughs> you know, I said, uh, wouldn't have it any other way. Uh, I mean, my challenge always was and always will be is to win and, 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 uh, I took a lot of pride in the fact that we were going to do everything we possibly could to continue to win. And we knew that at some point there was going to be some cliff that we're going to have to fall off of because, you know, players get older, they get hurt. Uh, You know, it's hard to replenish your organization and that sort of thing. But, um, but for me, it was about winning and going back to back and trying to stay, you know, be a be continue to be a winning team. And I needed to figure out how to do it. And I'd watched the Atlanta Braves beat up on us for years and years and years. I said, I'm going to do what I can to get as much pitching as I possibly can because offensively we're already very solid. So it was about pitching, 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 pitching for me. And, uh, and got a chance to make some pretty, um, pretty fun moves. Uh, when you're in the buyer end of things and you, and you have the, the backing of your organization and your owners, uh, it makes life a lot easier to, to try to continue to win. And, and they, uh, and I got a lot of support in that way. And I got I, I I ended up working with some great people. As I as I said, Pat Gillick continued to be an advisor for me. I should have listened to him more probably, but um, but it was just great having really good baseball people around me and, and to lean on, guys like Dallas Green and and uh Pat Gillick and Ed Wade, uh, I brought back into the fold. And so these are all people that I that were important to to rely on.
1: So what part would you have listened to him more?
0: You know, I'm I'm an impulsive guy, and there were times when he he was he also had like a mindset. He was a lot more patient and a little bit more methodical with his thought process. So I was a little bit more knee jerk, a little bit more emotional about some of the decisions I made. And then later on, I think I did a bit a little bit better job of handling that um, and being a little bit more patient. But sometimes when you're impulsive, um, you know, you may not make the right move. You may have you might, there might be another piece of information you might need before you finally make that you know pull the trigger on, on a trade or try to sign a guy um and i think everybody has their kind of white whales and things like of that nature but um but i think one of the things that uh if i were to change some things i would i would i would have brought back some of my or uh slowed down some of my emotion and my impulsiveness to make certain moves but listen i i, I don't regret uh, the, the things that I did um, because I did them with the right thought process in mind, which is to win. And, uh, and I don't, I don't blame myself for continuing to try to win. I think that was important for our fan base. And I think it was important for our organization.
1: Yeah. Were there, I mean, you brought Roy Holiday in. Yep. And
0: mm-hmm. uh, that was it. That was, that was my white whale. And, and Roy, yeah. um, you know, I had gotten a chance to see him so much, uh, we played right next to each other, them in Dunedin, uh, Florida, for spring training, us in the Clearwater. And and I just, I, I'd observed him so much over the years about how he went about his business. I I learned a lot about his makeup, what kind of person he was and how what kind of a competitor he was. And I mean, it's the throwback of a guy that um, that was an absolute perfectionist. And his story was an amazing story. I mean, he got to the big leagues as a highly touted major leaguer. He struggled. They sent him all the way down to A ball. He revamped his entire, you know, his entire program, comes back and becomes one of the best pitchers ever to, you know, ever on the planet. And, mm-hmm. and I just had a tremendous uh, respect for him and he was the guy. And I, I remember walking into David Montgomery's office after I got my job and thinking, I have one favor to ask if. Roy Halliday ever becomes available, I need to go get this guy because he's going to be perfect for Philadelphia. And uh, that was a that was kind of crazy, and was it ended up kind of being a harbinger because we ended up, you know, getting him not in 2009 during the during the uh, um, trading deadline. We ended up getting Cliff Lee, but then we got him in 2010, and that was uh, that was a really cool moment to to bring him on, and he just was fabulous. He was just yeah. tremendous.
1: Yeah. You know, always following his career from, I always thought from the mental standpoint, of course, I mean, there was no better model than Roy Holliday from how he approached everything. I mean, you know, because he was akin to Nolan Ryan, I think, when it came to, like, his preparation and how he'd prepare for things. It was amazing to, you know, even even at that level, I mean, everyone's struggling with something that, that we just don't even know about.
0: Yeah, no, there's no question. And he was so competitive. I think it got to the point for him personally that Uh, I got to tell you this story about Roy Halladay. He would text me when he wasn't performing well. I mean, you talk about accountable. He would text me on games. Like if he threw six innings and they scored three or four runs off of him and he didn't have like a quality start. uh, He would literally after the game text me. I'm sorry, I'm letting you down. Uh, Don't worry. I'm going to be fine. I'm going to come back. You know, I mean... There is nobody I've ever been around other than maybe Chase Utley was as accountable as Roy Halliday. I mean, it was just amazing uh, what he stood for. And, and, what, and I think it got to the point where he, his body was so broken down that he ended up having to try to figure out other ways to keep himself on the field and to per- perform. And, and it kind of led him uh, to a tough path.
1: Yeah. Yeah, that's, wow. That's amazing. Be texting you after a bad outing yeah. Saying. We're gonna get up next yeah. time. Uh, yeah,
0: don't it. don't don't worry about me. I'm sorry I, I let you down, but I will not let you down next to my next hour. Yeah. I mean, who does this? This is the best right. pitcher on the planet. I said, right. dude, you don't you know what I mean you don't have to worry about me. I know your efforts always there, you know. So yeah.
1: what about the um you know, in Philly, I went to Temple University. Okay. Um but you know, I grew up in Maryland, so I'm a DC and Baltimore Orioles fan. But I love Philly fan because they're um, well, they're passionate. I mean, I, I my, again, my wife's a big Eagles fan. I just kind of joke with my kids that I said, "Look, I mean, there's no better fan because they're just they're the animals, you know, in the best way
0: possible. Like they yeah, are. Yeah, I mean, no yeah. question.
1: So when it's when you start to struggle, then as the GM, what was that experience then like for you?
0: Yeah, it was tough. I mean, in Philadelphia, here's how I separate like Philly fans from every other fan. They Philly fans literally believe that they can impact the game or an organization with the way they vocalize. Boo, Amen. cheer. Yeah. They literally feel like they can impact a game, whether it's hockey, football, baseball, it doesn't matter. And yeah. they have. They've done it before. And so, It's unique in that regard. And listen, this is stuff that I, you know, I knew I was gonna get into. I I remember telling my kids when I first got my job, it's that they're gonna love dad for about three or four years and then things are starting to go south and they're not gonna like dad very much anymore. So be ready for this. And they were prepared. I think fortunately I had those words with them because they were kind of prepared with the talk radio stuff and the fire Ruben Amaro stuff that, that started to happen because we started to go backwards. Um, for me personally I didn't care for it um but listen I, I I stood up to it i mean i couldn't didn't want to make any excuses about it um I always felt I oh, it was important for me as a steward of the organization to to be available to the media and to talk about it uh, I wasn't happy about it um, and I wish I would have had a, an opportunity to kind of turn us around but um but listen you you get hired to get fired in these jobs and uh and I didn't have any delusions of grandeur that this was going to be my lifelong job for the rest of my life I mean you know there's a you have to you know you have to perform and and it's a performance based you know industry and so um but, you know, when I got fired, I said, hey, listen, this is this is something that um, this is going to open up a different door, a different pathway for me to go do something else, which is what yeah. I ended up doing.
1: What did you learn like about yourself or, you know, yeah? what did you learn about yourself during that experience?
0: Um, well, one of the biggest things was that, you know, I didn't want to let myself feel um, like, hey. I don't want to be the person that is being depicted. Like this wasn't going to shape me as a human being. I'm still me. You know, people can not like the way I you know did my business as a TM, but I'm still Ruben Amaro, and I'm still the father of my two kids. And and that's the those were the most important things for me was to make sure that I focused on what was really really important. My, ba- my baseball career is as important as anything else, but family and friends and that sort of thing. That's also really important, uh, if not more so. And, you know, I, I wanted to make sure that they were okay. Um, and that they, once things didn't go well. And once I got fired that, you know, my daughters are looking up to me, like what's, what's dad's next step? Like, what are you going to do now Dad? And, um, and I immediately went to work. I see and listen, um, got an opportunity to go coach for the Boston Red Sox like oh my god what a great opportunity to continue my education about the game because i've been you know at 500 feet now i get to be on the dirt with these guys and and to learn some things with a great organization with great people and and, and a um and a t- terrific history and to be with a bunch of guys that i had played with in the major leagues and minor leagues as a coaching staff so um i think the the biggest thing is that hey things happen. You try to learn from them and then try to, and then try to, try to get better. And for me, um, you know, the the two reasons why I wanted to get back on the field is one, I wanted to see what was going on, what kind of changes were happening as far as analytics and the way people are coaching and that sort of thing. Um, because I'd gotten away from that a little bit as a GM and, you know, I also wanted to know what the players are about because, I was no longer. It had been a while since I'd been a player. I hadn't been in that clubhouse, and things are changing. You know the, the dynamic is changing. How is the coach relating to this player? How how are they dealing with things? Um, and it was a really really great experience for me. And and I actually thought, you know what, why not why not consider being a major league manager? That'd be that be a cool. You know, I've, I've worn I'd worn a lot of t- other hats, um, and I felt I like got enough knowledge of the game. This may give me an opportunity to perhaps be a manager. And I just wanted to stay in the game because I love this so much. Right. But I also wanted to learn about some of the things that you know. Uh, maybe I could have done a couple of things a little differently. Maybe I could have, uh, you know, may- maybe I would have taken some other things into account or taken in a different approach. And I think that experience helped me a lot.
1: When you reflect then on on get back in the dirt and coaching in the dugout, because I mean, there's no more sacred place, I think, in all the world than the clubhouse and the dugout. I mean, it's just a sacred place. When you got back on that and just kind of reflect on it, what stands out about that experience?
0: Um, So I'm sitting in in, uh, spring training. I was kind of nervous because, you know, you want to have some credibility as a coach when you're when you're in the major leagues, because they'll find, you know, the, the players will find you out quickly. If you don't know what you're talking about, you know what you're doing. So obviously in the off season, when I got the job and John Farrell brought me on with Dave Dombrowski, um, to be their coach, the, uh, their first base coach and outfield coach, I, you know, I started preparing and doing a lot of, you know, things, doing a lot of phone calls, calling some, some people that, Uh, I knew, uh, I respected about base running and outfield play and that sort of thing. But I also made a lot of calls to the players because my dad always told me one thing that was really, really important. It's about your connection with the players. You're their liaison between the manager and the players. You have to, you have to have them buy into what, you know, to what you're trying to teach or what you're trying to. And, and honestly, I was very honest with the guys when I called, uh, when I called Mookie Betts and I called, uh... Uh, like uh, all the guys, Jackie Bradley Jr., all all those guys. I wanted to build a rapport with them and to know that, hey, I don't know everything about this. This is my first time. Uh, you can Google me to see what I've done in my career as far as you know outfield play and this that, and the other. But I just want to, you know, get to know you and and looking forward to to uh, you know being able to work with you and and having you guys teach me as much as hopefully I can teach you. So. Um, th- those were the kind of important moments for me. It was a great challenge. It was so fun. I was nervous. And then I remember putting my uniform on in spring training. When I was down in Fort Myers and thinking to myself, oh my God, this is so cool. I get to put a uniform on again mm-hmm. and be with a bunch of guys that, uh, that I really liked. I mean, uh, I had played and played against Tori LaBella, who was a bench coach at the time. John Farrell, I had played with the Cleveland Indians, uh, Chili Davis. I had played with, with the, with the angels. I mean, uh, Victor Rodriguez was the was the assistant hitting coach. I had played with him with the Phillies. I mean, it was bizarre. And and then Gary Sarcino, who's one of my best friends in all the game, he ended up being um, the the bench coach afterwards, and we ended up coaching together in, in New York. But um, but just being able to be around and Brian Butterfield and, I, and Brian, uh, who's a long long time coach, very well respected, someone I uh, I had seen over the years in you know Toronto and Arizona and all places. It was just fun being around these guys. It was almost like it, that camaraderie. You know, you talked about that sacred place, as you said, Rob. Mm-hmm. That's exactly what it felt like. Like, oh my God, I got to be part of something really important here and part of an organization that was wanting to win. And that was the cool part about being involved yeah. in that.
1: And was there like a specific coaching moment that kind of stands out to you that you really did a good job?
0: So this is actually a cool, this is a cool story about a relationship between coach to coach. So Brian Butterfield is a very intense coach, a very knowledgeable, excellent coach. And, um, and I have a great, he's a good friend, a great deal of respect, but they, but he's, he's tough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I think I, I gained automatic respect from him because of what I had been in the game. Um, and what I've done, what I had done in the game. But there was a moment where one of our players had thrown to the uh, what what Brian thought was the wrong base in a certain situation. He ended up trying to throw a guy out at third base and and you know uh, the batter runner advanced, and we we, kept, we didn't keep the double play in order or what have you. but it was a bang, bang play at third base. And I thought the outfielder made the right decision. I was always one of those guys, just to to talk about this for a second, to always try to keep the double play in order, not let guys get extra bases on back on throws, you know, overthrows and that sort of thing. Anyway, it was a bang bang play, and it was a very close play. He almost threw the guy out of third base, and he probably could have called him out, did not. But the batter runner did advance, get to second base. There was no harm, no foul. We were lucky because the pitcher ended up getting out of it. Um, but when the player came off the field, I went directly to him and said, because I could see that he was upset with himself. Uh, it was Bryce Brents, as a matter of fact, is a, a young uh, outfielder who was not not an everyday player, but he he was playing that day. Um, and I and I say, hey, I know you're upset with yourself, but I thought you made the right decision. You kept the ball low. It wasn't like would well, you air it, whatever? I you know, and I and then I saw later. In while we were in the dugout, I saw Brian Butterfield actually say the very opposite to him, which is a no no. (laughs) I mean, you can't give, you can't have a coach undermine another coach. Just should never happen. And uh, after the game, I I, I was fuming. I was not happy that he had done that, obviously. Um, But out of respect for him, I took a deep breath. This is the, you know, this was my, uh, Pat Gillick moment. I took 24 hours. I went to him after the next day and I grabbed him and went, uh, we took a private moment. I said, I said, butter said, you know, I have a great deal of respect for you. You are a, the one of the best coaches I know in baseball, but for you to go to my outfielder and tell him exactly what that's, that's not your area. I said, I want to work with you. If you wanted to come to me and say that I thought you know, and, t- and have us talk about it and then go to him. That's one thing. But for you to go to that player after I just told him he made the right move, that's the wrong thing to do. And I think that was a cathartic moment. I mean, he had such great respect. I didn't embarrass him in front of anybody. It was a private moment. It was a discussion. Um, and he said, you know what? I've been in this game a long time, and I've never been treated like that in the most in the most professional way ever. And you, you, learned, you helped me learn something about myself as a person, as a coach, and you made me better today. And, um, that was a good moment for me. That was a really cool moment. Uh, it was a good learning moment and, it, and, you know, it goes back to what, you know, do you really learn things about yourself to make yourself better as a person, as an athlete, as a, you know, whatever, as a father. And that was one of those moments where I, you know, where I could have blown up and just, you know, been ridiculous. Hey, don't you ever, you know, and, and maybe 10 years prior, I would have done that. But, um, but out of respect for him, and out of, and and I think it just had a whole lot more impact that way, and uh, and I'll never forget that moment because I my bond between Brian and myself is so great now, and I think I'm sure that's one of the moments, and then it's yeah. the reason why.
1: Because I think of that moment too, and I love that story. I appreciate you sharing that because I think of that too, where even in everyday life, somebody might have either. Going one or the other way, right? They might have reacted and, and it have it blown up and then becomes an issue and then we're apologizing about that or not say anything. And then yeah, let
0: it fester. Let it fester. Yeah,
1: and then resentment sort of grows. And then yeah, you know, correct. so I even look at that moment. That's that's that was that's really huge.
0: Yeah, it's good it's a good moment for me as a as a as a coach, as a person, as a as an executive. I think those things because I was never afraid to uh, address things and the, and to give people respect of having the discussion, you know, you, you, you're allowed to disagree. To disagree, uh, it's okay. Um, but I think it's important to be able to address these things in a in a you know controlled uh, manner where you know we show respect for each other.
1: Yeah, Coach. One of the things I'm fascinated about is process over the product. And I'm always fascinated about it because I'm a, you know, I'm a mountaintop guy. I want to be on the mountaintop and hold up the flag and cheer. And But we always have to come back down off that mountaintop. And I know a lot of people struggle with that is we focus so much on the outcome, so much on the result that we think that it is life changing. And it is to a point, but we're still the same person. And if we only focus on that outcome one way or another, it's going to leave us empty because we think that that holding up that trophy or holding up that medal or prize is going to be it. But we, again, we can't live up on that mountaintop. How, how do you explain, um, you know, how long does that mountaintop feeling for you last and how did you always deal with that?
0: Yeah. I mean, to me, um, you know, when, you're matriculating your way as a player, as you're matriculating your way through the major leagues or minor leagues. Um, You know, I was, my numbers were extraordinary I had you know, very, very good offensive numbers. I made myself an excellent major league player, uh, minor league player. It didn't translate to the major leagues. And I struggled with that. I like what, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't, grasp it and and I think you're right. I think the most important thing is as I go back and just kind of sort of repeating myself, I lost my process. I lost what were the things that got me to be where I was. and so um, I think it's always important that while while it's okay to be competitive, I think that's great. I think that's you want to be you want to win. Um, there's also uh, even and probably more importantly, there's all these fundamentals that have these things that that are so important for you to be able to do whatever it is that you need to work on yourself. They those things are are as important, if not more, to to be sure that you're in that routine and you're doing those things. That process, um, like I never put goals on my. I never said to myself, "I'm going to be a 300 hitter this year." No, I'm going to take every single at bat and I'm going to try to make my do my damnedest to not give away at-bats. I'm going to try to concentrate. I'm going to get 500 at-bats, but I'm going to do, if I concentrate on 450 of those at-bats and only give away like 50 of them, as opposed to 150 of them, then I'm going to have a chance to, at the end of the day to do the kind of damage and have the kind of success I need to have. To have. And so I always, um, I I always, my goal was always to win, but I didn't put like individual goals to on myself just because i knew that if i did the if i did the right things to get me there that i would i it, it would eventually happen
1: mm-hmm. coach what question should i be asking that i just that i haven't
0: asked <laughs> you've asked some good ones man this is as good uh uh an in-depth uh you know kind of discussion that i've had in a long time and i you know i love the questions they're they're great i um I don't know. I think uh, one of the things that I talk like to talk about a lot is 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 um, uh, you know you have to have some experience. You have to experience failure. You have to be able to deal with it and overcome it to to be better. And that sounds so cliche. It sounds so ridiculous. But but I think a lot of uh, a lot of people don't ever want to feel that failure, and they don't ever get a chance to really learn and to and to overcome those those failures and I think that makes people uh, smarter that works in more intelligently work more efficiently uh, feel better about themselves I mean you know I, I think that there's uh, you know we all reach plateaus in our lives for you know in life and family and whatever the case may be but if you're really trying to get a little bit better every day it's okay to fail a little bit I mean I you know I think that's part of the process, and it doesn't have to stop you. It can actually make you be better. <laughs> and and I think that the people that have the greatest amount of success are the people that deal with failure really well, mm-hmm. and and work on overcoming that and figuring out a way to to get to the next level. And and that experience, and that's where experience is important to me, because it's not just experience having success; it's also experience having failure and overcoming. That's where, that's where I'm at.
1: Yeah. So what, in terms of that, someone's listening to this podcast, what's the advice that you give to that individual, no matter where they are kind of in life, say if they are hitting that plateau and, and they're kind of wondering what, what's next for them, what, what do what you tell them?
0: I think to me, it's okay to take a step back and to, and to think about, okay, um, what happened, uh, Maybe it's something I couldn't control. Maybe it was something I could control. Was it something that, if it was something I could control, then, okay, let's see. Let's see what's the solution. Where do I want to go from here? What can I do to to improve so that that doesn't happen again um, or that uh, something that will help me grow? I um, mean, Even if you get, don't get that opportunity. I never got an opportunity again to be an everyday major league player, but that didn't stop me from realizing my goal, which was to try to help a major league team win and be and play at the major league level. So, um, you know, sometimes your goals can change and that's okay. Your goals can change. And it's just a matter of whether, um, you know, I think that you're passionate enough or you want to, um, if you really want to succeed, it's kind of up to you. But I think you should view some of these failures and some of these plateaus as a real opportunity to, for growth.
1: Coach, thank you so much, man, for uh, for taking the time. I, I really enjoyed this. I can't wait for, for people to listen to it and, and absorb it, man. So so many nuggets in that.
0: Thanks so much, Coach. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really enjoyed it, Rob.
1: Thanks for listening to Mental Toughness with Dr. Rob Bell. To find out more about Dr. Rob, visit his website at drrobbell.com or follow him on Twitter at Dr.
0: And subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast platform to get the next episode of Mental Toughness as soon as it's available. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.